Welcome to this off-topic edition of the Banished Pen Podcast. I'm Ken Maeda, one of the editors of the site. Uh, I'm excited and sort of terrified to be joined <laughs> by Ben Lindbergh, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Effectively Wild podcast from Baseball Prospectus. Uh, he's also a writer at Nate Silver's 538, uh, which, like Lucasfilm, is under the Disney umbrella. That's right. Uh, yeah. Ben, uh, thanks for being on. I'm happy to. Thanks for having me. I think I'll kind of be like the uh, Chris Farley to your uh, Paul McCartney. <laughs> uh, so I was just curious if you were nervous when you interviewed uh, Webb and Albers uh, earlier this year. Uh, I was a little bit just because I was asking them about their record of games finished without a save. At this point, after some years of baseball writing, I don't get that nervous to do player interviews anymore. Although sometimes in the clubhouse, they can be awkward for various reasons and states of undress. But uh, over phone, it's usually fine. But since I was asking them about such a strange niche interest yeah, that kind of a dubious, I yeah. thought I would have to explain just to get a comment on. I was kind of a little apprehensive about that, but they were good sports about it. Yeah, and that was uh, fun to listen to. So there might be moments where I kind of blank out because I I might feel like I'm listening to you on Effectively Wild, so <laughs> uh, it's just some warning there. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, a few of us uh, at our site uh, did a separate podcast on the uh, new Star Wars movie earlier, um, so that should be up a little after this is up. Um, but we'll get to be sort of an outlet for you to talk about the, the new Star Wars movie and just the I guess, mm -hmm. fandom in general. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because <laughs> as Grantland was shutting down, a few of us were a few days away from starting a Star Wars podcast. It was going to be me and Jason Concepcion and Dave Schilling and Alex Papadimus. And we were going to do a weekly thing leading up to the movie and then talking about the movie. And then we weren't sure exactly what would happen to it after that. But we were going to just give it a shot and see if it caught on kind of a... Star Wars equivalent to the Grantland Watch the Thrones podcast for Game of Thrones. So we were all really looking forward to that, and we didn't get to do it. So it's nice to have somewhere to talk about Star Wars. And uh, Concepcion is at a Network mm -hmm. on Twitter, yeah. and uh, one of our writers was curious uh, what he was like in person. And I think you mentioned that you had seen the movie with him. Yeah, we saw it. He, I did a marathon, Star Wars marathon at my house, and he came for part of that, and then we went to see the movie. He's he's great. <laughs> he's uh, as funny in person as he is on Twitter and just as much of a nerd. And uh, the podcast that you had planned, what was like the format that you guys uh, had in mind and how often uh, would that have gone up? We were probably going to do it weekly and it was shaping up to be sort of a three segment show where maybe there would be an interview from someone from the Star Wars universe, <laughs> not the actual one, but the making of, and then maybe a kind of a round table group discussion kind of thing, and then a deep dive on some expanded universe topic that Jason or I would have done sort of similar to his Ask Maester stuff with Game of Thrones. So would have been a nice mix of guests and group conversation and probably would have been a lot of fun. Okay, so hopefully uh, you'll find a way to uh, do that. I hope so too. Um, okay, so I also wanted to ask about uh, your book that's coming out in May. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. You just finished your uh, first draft. Yeah, we did. And there's not a lot of turnaround time. So Sam Miller and I ran an independent league team or tried to run one this past summer and kind of tried to apply sabermetric principles and just a couple of guys who didn't play the game coming into a clubhouse and seeing how we'd handle that golf. And so there were a lot of successes and a lot of frustrations and failures. And hopefully all of those things will make for an entertaining read. So yeah, it's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. 
and there's also a, a long subtitle, which you can look up yourself. And uh, we just finished just in time for me to watch Star Wars all day last week. And there's a really quick turnaround. The whole process has been very abbreviated because publisher wanted to get the book out in May, and we also wanted to get the book out in May, but the season ended basically August 31st, and then I came home and started writing. So we wrote this book in a few months, and now we've got a few weeks to edit and revise it, and then it gets copy edited, and it's all just a very quick turnaround because sometimes in publishing, these things can be years. You don't even realize you sign a book deal, and then the book doesn't come out for you know three years down the road, but this is very quick from start to end. So it was nice to celebrate for one day. It just happened to work out that way that I was in this really intense cramming period crunch time the last week before the book deadline, which was December 16th. And purely by coincidence, that was the day before Star Wars. So I was able to kick back for one day and watch Star Wars before I got edits back from our editor and had to then start on that. So it worked out perfectly. Just the one day that I was free was Star Wars Day. Yeah, it's kind of funny that the new, this movie didn't movie didn't come out. Usually comes out during baseball season, so uh, right. Yeah, the timing is kind of different. Yeah, would have been nice if I hadn't happened to be writing a book at this exact time. But otherwise, would have been nice at a slow time. Uh, and I was wondering what the I don't know if you can tell us what the narration would be like since there are two of you and you're both uh, directly involved in the story. Yeah, it's it's alternating chapters. Sort of, there's a prologue and then it's a Sam chapter and a Ben chapter the rest of the way through and. That can get kind of complicated in that there are scenes where one of us was present and the other wasn't, and that might line up with a chapter that the other person is writing. So you won't be able to necessarily point at every word and say, Ben wrote this and Sam wrote this, even if it's in a Ben or Sam chapter, we are kind of swapping out here and there, and Sam will write something that will end up in my voice and, and vice versa. So that does complicate things a little bit. I mean, it makes it easier in that each of us only had to write half a book, but it does kind of complicate the coordination and making sure that we're not talking about people we haven't introduced yet or referring to scenes that the other person hasn't written yet. So there is a lot of back and forth about that. And there are things that, you know, I wrote in the first draft and our editor kind of rearrange the structure a little bit and now the thing I wrote is a thing Sam writes and so the the pronouns change basically but most of the rest of it stays the same so it's a very very much a collaborative effort and um that's available now on Amazon and it sounds like it's uh selling pretty well it seems to be when I when I tweet about it people people buy it and then it climbs up the Amazon sales rank from like millionth to something a little less depressing so, yeah, I appreciate that people are buying it this far in advance. It's great. So um, I guess uh, as far as Star Wars goes, um, I guess we kind of get hints of your uh, fandom uh, on your podcast and in your writing. And uh, especially on Grantland, you got to do a few pieces uh, just actually on Star Wars. So, um, yeah, yeah. So we want to have you on for that and get your thoughts. So I guess we can talk about the movie now. Um, so I think you saw it last night. Uh, I don't know if that was your second time. Yeah, I saw it late Thursday night with Jason and some high school friends who I actually saw Revenge of the Sith with back when we were still in high school. And I liked it initially very much, but I felt the need to see it again. I mean, I would have seen it again anyway, but by the time I saw it for the first time, I was so out of it that there were parts of the movie that when it was over, I just barely recalled because it was coming after this week of not sleeping, working on the book. 
And then we started watching Star Wars very early uh, on Thursday. I had friends over and we watched a couple of seasons of the Clone Wars cartoon. And then we watched Revenge of the Sith. And then we watched the original trilogy. And then we went to a movie that was supposed to start at 1230, but ended up starting around 115, I think, because the theater was a madhouse and the poor employees were going crazy and probably hate Star Wars more than anyone else in the world after that experience. And so by the time the movie finished, it was about 3.30 in the morning after, you know, weeks of not sleeping and a day of just watching Star Wars from, from the break of dawn almost. So I was so out of it that I needed to go back and see it again. And the second time I saw it, I actually liked it more when I was fully conscious. So that's probably a good sign. Um, so the first time, were you kind of subdued emotionally or did you think was it like you had a stronger emotional reaction to everything? Yeah, I lack of sleep? think I was, I think I was more subdued. I mean, I, I had the rush of nerd adrenaline when the, the Lucasfilm logo comes on the screen and there's the, you know, the blue text and then there's the opening crawl and everything. And, but I think I, I was just running on fumes so much that by the time some of the more emotional moments came around, I was probably not quite in the mindset that I would have wanted to be the first time I saw it. So I think the second time it probably had more of a, an emotional impact on me. I was just less emotionally muted all across the board. Yeah, and I think the first time anyone sees it, there's kind of a lot to take in um, right. as far as the story and like the visuals, and you're still kind of lingering on something that just happened when they move on to the next scene. Yeah, I'm staring at the screen. I'm just trying to memorize everything because it's, it's strange to go from... The original trilogy, which I've seen a million times, and I know every line, and I know every you know every character who's every on nuance. screen for half a second, <laughs> and has an yeah. entire EU backstory that I don't even know whether it's canon anymore or not, but I still know it. So going from that to this thing that you know you're going to get to that point with yeah. at some point down the road, but at this point it's all new to you, and you kind of just want to you want to just cement it in your mind and memorize everything and take it all in, but when you're trying to do that, it sort of detracts, I think, from just the the first time experience of seeing it and letting it kind of wash over you. So that's why I, I end up seeing these movies a bunch of times. And uh, it seemed like leading up to it, Disney was pretty good about keeping things uh, secretive about the plot details. Um, did you? How much did you try to avoid uh, spoilers? Yeah, going into it? yeah, there there. There was a point where I was reading spoilers. I was on making Star Wars and all those sites. And I just, I don't know. I, I didn't want to have to hide from it because it is so hard to hide from it. And I figured I'll just, I'll just spoil myself and then no one else will have the power to spoil me. And at some point as the movie approached, I lost the desire to do that. And I just, I wanted it to be a surprise. So I think I, knew more about the movie than someone who was just, you know, a completely casual fan coming in blind. But I had basically detoxed from the the Star Wars rumor mill and even hadn't watched the last couple trailers or TV spots because I felt like I had seen as much of the movie as I wanted to. So there were definitely big surprises. I mean, I, I didn't feel like I knew that much going in. I knew some of the new characters and everything, but those are things that you find out a few minutes into the movie really so beyond that point i you know i i felt like i didn't really know all that much more than you would have gleaned from the trailer and that was nice i, I guess after first viewing and second viewing um 
uh, the, on the podcast that some of us did earlier, uh, we kind of graded on a 20 to 80 scale. I think uh, three of us put it at 70, uh-huh. and there was a 60 in there. Um, so I had it at 70. I think entertainment-wise, like I would say it was an 80. Uh-huh. Um, maybe the story was, you know, there could have been, there were some weaknesses. Uh, what were your, what were your uh, thoughts on it? I would probably put it around where you did. I think I, I the first time I saw it, I had some misgivings about the sort of J.J. Abramsness of it, and you know his his tendency to kind of you know build a new movie on the bones of the old movie. And there are so many parallels in this movie to A New Hope or to the original trilogy. And well, without even getting into any of the big reveals, I mean, just you know, there's a super weapon, and there's a trench run, and there's a droid with some secret information that everyone's trying to track down. And I mean, there are just so many parallels to the original trilogy. And at first that sort of bothered me. And I'm thinking, you know, this is another Star Trek into darkness, which I really didn't enjoy very much. And and I think even Abrams has acknowledged recently that that didn't turn out the way that he wanted it to turn out. So there is kind of that concern about, you know, wanting to reboot a franchise, but having it be too dependent on the original franchise. And and fan service and the old faces. And that was a concern the first time I saw it. But the second time I saw it, I, I think it really does stand on its own. And there is a lot of that. And, you know, of course, someone says, I have a bad feeling about this. And, you know, there's 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 that. But I think there's, if anything, there's less of that than there is in the prequels. I, you know, there are just so many lines in the prequels, like Anakin or, you know, Obi-Wan saying, I have a feeling you're going to be the death of me when he meets Anakin. And the first time you see that in the theater, maybe everyone laughs. And then every subsequent time, yeah. it's just terrible. And <laughs> it's like, don't do that. Uh, and so I think there was less of that, if anything, than I was expecting in this movie. No one had an arm cut off, even unless you count C-3PO's mysterious new arm. And uh, I think it really does stand on its own. I mean, he definitely captured the feeling of Star Wars which is the most important thing. He established the new characters in their own right. I think they're compelling characters, not just in their relationship to original trilogy characters who reappeared, but but on their own. And it's it's a I think the narrative is it borrows a lot from the original trilogy, but it's also kind of its own thing and it's a a good beginning to a trilogy and I'm also sort of happy I think that he's handing it off to other directors. For the rest of the series, I don't know whether there will be anything lost in translation in switching directors in the middle of a trilogy, but I kind of like that, you know, he was the guy to revitalize it and bring it back from this long layoff and the tarnish of the prequels and rehabilitate it, but then hand it off to someone else who maybe is, I don't know, a more original storyteller. I don't want to, I don't want to be an ingrate because what Abrams did with this movie is is really great. He reestablished Star Wars as I think not just a nostalgia series, but you know, it's like a it's like a, an old band releasing a new album of good original material instead of just touring on the hits. So I think it's it's a, a huge achievement. Um, and I kind of wonder whether we will ever see another series that is so valuable to its corporate owner be mishandled as much as the prequels were. Because it seems like at this point, the way Hollywood works with all these tentpole properties and millions and millions of dollars being invested in all of them and all of them being a part of this huge network, this patchwork quilt of many movies, it doesn't seem like there's maybe as much potential for someone, for one person to screw it up 
quite as much as as Lucas screwed up the prequels because he kind of had free reign and he owned it and it was a one-man show. Whereas now there's just such an enormous infrastructure behind all of these movies that it seems like it would be harder to make a complete failure. I guess yeah. there's Fantastic Four still, but it seems like it seems like it would be harder to do. And just, I mean, from watching the prequels, and I only watched Revenge of the Sith, which is, I think, by far the best of them in my pre-movie marathon, but it's just, I mean, it's really, it's kind of mind-boggling how bad those movies <laughs> were. And, and I say that as someone who's seen them like dozens of times and thinks that there are good things about them, but just having a competent script and having someone who can bring the best out of actors really, uh, I mean, that gets you most of the way because you have this great affection for Star Wars that you're coming into the movie with. And so you really have to do a lot of work to overcome that. And Lucas did and Abrams didn't. So I, I think it's uh, pretty much exactly what we would have hoped for this movie to be. Yeah, I guess if the worst thing you can say about the new one is that if there are some retread elements, mm-hmm. uh, I think we would take that. Yes, definitely. Uh, what were like your favorite aspects of the film? Uh, I, I like the characters a lot. I think you know they were, I guess, written with a lot more life and mm-hmm. energy, and I, I like the banter a lot, which was missing, uh, especially compared to the originals. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't like Anakin's. I'm sorry, Master. I forgot you don't like well, flying. That's like the. <laughs> well, I, I like that Lucas kind of made more of an effort in two and three, mm-hmm. uh, with Anakin and Obi Wan. And um, I, I've been hearing more lately about how Ewan McGregor was like maybe the best thing about the prequels. Yeah. And if he had maybe had a bigger role, especially in Episode One, uh, I think that might have helped. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I was. I also was struck by that. I mean, a couple minutes into the Force Awakens, there's there's a laugh line, which is something you don't really see in the prequels. There's Oscar Isaac just sort of being a wise ass with Kylo Ren, and it was great because the whole archetype of the masked super evil villain is there's sort of a, an absurdity to it that the movies don't really do much with. And so the fact that Ren, I think, is kind of, I mean, he is super evil and he is super scary, but there is kind of this uh, immaturity to him. And I was worried that he would just be, you know, a Darth Vader ripoff. He's clearly inspired by Darth Vader, the character, and and also he is. He talks to Darth Vader's mask and he builds himself a Darth Vader-esque mask. And so I was concerned that he would just be another Vader. But I think there are a lot of important differences. I mean, there's the fact that he is young and he's still in training as a supervillain. And so he just freaks out and lightsabers everything occasionally when he gets angry, when he gets bad news. And you kind of see the movie do things with that, like the, the two stormtroopers who turn and walk away at some point when they hear him freaking out and slashing everything around him when when Ray escapes later in the in the film that's the kind of thing that I, I don't know I guess in the in the movie in the prequels you probably would have had battle droids going uh oh and like turning around <laughs> it would have been terrible and this was sort of understated but still funny and so yeah I think the the banter whether it's Han and Leia banter or Poe Dameron banter or or you know Finn's banter is great pretty much every character has a sense of humor in this movie, or at least the good guys do. And that was really refreshing. I like that, like, compared to, like, I guess with uh, Joss Whedon on The Avengers, like, it's not quite that kind of clever, witty banter. Mm-hmm. 
uh, feels a little bit more like natural and like kind of maybe unscripted. Yeah, right. It doesn't feel like someone wrote it <laughs> into a script. It sounds like something you might actually say off the cuff. And and yeah, I I appreciated that because it it has all the big Star Wars themes and it's the battle between good and evil and there's the Force and all of those mystical elements are in there. But you really do kind of need that that Han Solo alternative to the all serious, all mystical, all the time. And it's not just the actual Han Solo, but it's all of the new leads kind of have that aspect to them. And you know, even the, I mean, yes, the the new protagonist is also a young person from a backwater desert planet who gets pulled into this uh, galaxy-wide conflict and goes from, you know, basically the equivalent of moisture farming to being a central character in this in this resistance versus force, first order dispute by the end of the first movie. But it's different, I think. It's uh, Daisy or uh, Daisy Ridley, Ray is, is kind of more competent than Luke, I think. Less yeah, competent and confident. It seems yeah, like. less whiny. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that Luke is still sort of still sort of whiny. Like his whatever went wrong with training Ben Ben Solo has just sent him into exile, kind of the way that he <laughs> gives up when he's training with Yoda. Like he's not really not really the doesn't really have the most persistence for someone who is supposed to be the savior of the galaxy. So I like that that aspect of of Luke that just kind of gives up when things go against him is still preserved in his character. But, um, but yeah, I think Ray is, is very similar to the Luke arc in some ways, but also as a person, very different and in mostly good ways. So, and you know, I, I think the, the Poe Dameron character is like kind of a hybrid between Wedge and Han and you actually see him do things outside of his cockpit, which is nice. And, uh, you know the the original characters i think are integrated well they have their moments they actual they actually serve a, a purpose and they still have the charm that they had in the original movies but they're not just there for the applause that they get the first time they come on the screen they actually have a point and they have good lines and they're true to their original trilogy characters so yeah i think the the characters handled really well and there's there's not really much of a a love aspect to this film and maybe that will develop later in the in the trilogy obviously there's a hint of it with finn and ray but it's very muted and understated and and that's a relief i think coming after the the prequels yeah. i mean Seems like I, even the originals it's always there's always like a love at first sight element right if there's more of like a platonic yeah. relationship uh, it would be nice but i can't see that uh, continuing on for the next yeah i mean uh, yeah maybe it's just the incredibly awkward way that the Anakin Padme story was was handled makes me just not want to see a Star Wars love story anymore. But uh, but I like how that was sort of introduced, but it wasn't the focus. It was just sort of a, a subtle thing that might develop later in the trilogy, but it wasn't hitting us over in the hitting us over the heads in, in this movie. Yeah, and I appreciated that. I think um, uh, when the story was being done, um, Kasdan, uh, Lawrence Kasdan. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the co-writers, he was making a point of wanting to add a, like a goofy element to this, which uh, you know was a memorable part of uh, the originals. Yeah, right. And and there's, I mean, BB-8 is obviously going to be you know the the best-selling toy this Christmas probably. But even if he's sort of a, a kid-friendly element, it's not as kid-pandering, I guess, as the 
as the prequel elements were, whether it was Jar Jar, Boss Nass, or the, the Federation battle droids or whatever it was, they were just all, you know, just they would appeal to kids but sicken adults, whereas I think BB-8 appeals to everyone. He was charming in the way that R2 is charming, but not in the way that is just so sickly sweet and infantile that it just it drives you away from the movie so um there's definitely i guess they didn't like dwell on his cuteness too much yeah right kind of worked it mm -hmm. in well and it's a really cool design for for a droid and i like that there's still like gonk droids in the background at the yeah, and there's like a mouse droid, like I yeah. think in the very first uh, shot. Right. The old, the old question about why technology in Star Wars never, never seems to advance yeah. at all. Yeah. Which I guess you can explain by the fact that there's a new Sith Lord tearing the galaxy apart all the time, which maybe slows down technological innovation. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed that, uh, like, that the original droids R2 and 3PO, like, they weren't used as like the narrative device as they were before. Yeah. Yeah, they they weren't, and maybe they'll play a bigger role in the the later movies when Luke presumably plays a bigger role also. But I like that that they were there, uh, and three PO at least got his one kind of old school charming C three PO moment when he gets in the way of Han and Leia's reunion. Um, but yeah, they were definitely taking a, a backseat to the the new droid that has to sell action figures. So uh, I I appreciated that they were that they were there. But it felt like a passing of a torch to a new droid generation. And uh, just, I guess, as a fan, did you miss like Luke not being there until like the very end? And um, I get well, when, when the movie starts out with the opening crawl, like he's mentioned in like the very first line. Right, Luke Skywalker has vanished. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't even see him until like the last minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't mind. I don't think uh, I I wasn't really sitting there lamenting Luke's absence because. You know, his his absence is a big driving force behind the narrative. Everyone's looking for Luke. You got the sense that he was going to be in it at some point, and then it would be this big, satisfying reveal, which I think it was for the most part. So, so no, I didn't I didn't mind. I thought there was just about the right amount of original trilogy character. Obviously, you know, Han was kind of the the backbone of the movie in a sense, um, but I didn't really miss more Luke. I think we'll probably get plenty of Luke in the next movie or two movies. So I had no problem with, with how he was introduced here. Okay. And so um, I guess one of the elements of the plot in this one is uh, another super weapon, the uh, Star Killer Base. Right. And I just saw this morning, you actually wrote a little bit about that uh, for Grantland. Mm -hmm. You're kind of, I guess, defending it uh, at the time. Um, but having seen it, uh, what were your thoughts on kind of reusing the, uh, yeah. the idea, I guess? Yeah, I was kind of tongue-in-cheek defending the <laughs> idea of there being a super weapon, uh, just because the, the history of super weapons in the Star Wars universe is not really a successful one, um, which is maybe why there are so many of them. It's not just the Death Stars, but it's the Sun Crushers and, you know, Darksaber and just all these other things from the EU. Everyone always wants to build something that can destroy a planet and or even a world destroyer, which is not very subtly named, but was another thing from the, the comics. So these things generally haven't panned out very well because they always have some design flaw. And I thought it was... Which, which I think Han kind of literally points out. Yeah, he does. And that was that was almost too cute, but, but it was okay. Like if you're going to have another planet-shaped, or in this case planet-sized, super weapon show up in your movie, then you have to, I think, at least acknowledge what happened to the previous ones. And so 
Han says, yeah, you know, there's there's always some easy way to blow these up. I'm paraphrasing, but I I, can, I mean that um, that scene where they get the you know where they analyze the weakness of the Star Killer base is just so it's just kind of like half ass. It's like a two minute meeting yeah. where they're just like we could probably blow up this regulator thing and that'll probably work. And they're like, all right, let's, let's just go shoot at this thing. And it was just, there weren't even like old school new hope wireframe schematics or anything of like the, the one vital point. Um, Cause that's always the problem with these super weapons is, or, you know, shield generators is like, you can't shield the shield as well as you can shield whatever the shield is shielding. So I don't love that there was another, planet-sized super weapon um this one even bigger i guess if you're going to do another super weapon then you have to have it be the size of a planet inside of a moon and you have to have it being able to destroy several planets at once instead of one planet and actually suck all the energy out of a sun uh, instead of just firing a, a green laser so they definitely ramped it up somewhat um I, I would say that's probably one of my least favorite elements of the movie is that there's another super weapon that just blows up planets. I could have done without that, probably. It doesn't really ruin the movie for me or anything, but yeah. I, I probably would have recommended not another super weapon. But I guess if you're if you're the First Order and you're trying to establish yourself as the legitimate successor to the Empire, then you do it in every way that you can. So it's very on-brand for the first order to have a planet-sized super weapon, so if you're gonna bring back the Darth Vader-style lapdog of the supreme leader, who is you know horrifically scarred and appears via hologram, yeah, I think we're thinking we, he could be nicknamed Slim uh, based on your <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so if you're if you're gonna bring back all the other Empire iconography to establish yourself as the successor to the Empire then I suppose you would want to do the same with your super weapon. Yeah, it seemed like maybe the, potentially the best twist would have been uh, like during the fight uh, when the planet was breaking up uh, with Rey and uh, Kylo Ren, but mm -hmm. I guess they didn't take it as far as they could have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that fight. <laughs> it was a good fight. Um, and I, I liked how you kind of got to see the... I mean, it was uh, similar to Luke, but her, her sort of embrace of her Force powers was, I think, handled pretty well in that you kind of got a sense of it in that first fight between the Falcon and the couple of pursuing TIE fighters where she pulls off this incredible maneuver and Finn asks her how she did it and she has no idea. And so you get the sense, obviously, that she has some sort of latent ability that she's just managing to tap into. And then when she does the, the Jedi mind trick later, and it's, I think, also handled in an amusing way where she tries it once and it doesn't work and then she tries it a second time and it works very well. And then, you know, and Ren says the thing about how she's getting more powerful by the moment. And suddenly she's able to hold her own in a lightsaber duel with him, which, you know, maybe it was a bit accelerated or abbreviated that she could have overcome her complete lack of training that quickly. But I liked seeing the development all in this one movie uh, instead of, you know, in New Hope where you see him practice with the, the remote and, you know, he, he can deflect the bolts with the blaster shield on and a blast shield on. And then, you know, you see him use the force in the targeting computer, but you don't really get to see him become a full-fledged force user until later in the series and kind of got to see that all at once with Ray, which was, which was entertaining. Yeah. So some of us are wondering, I guess, in that fight scene, um, 
uh, with you having seen it a second time, I don't know if you were able to pick up anything. Or if it was that he had gotten shot, I think. So he was wounded. Yeah, right. And I, I like that a lot just after he was shot by the, the bowcaster yeah. and he's kind of limping around. And the thing he does where he, he punches himself in his in his damaged wherever it is, his, his waist or wherever he got hit, just kind of, you know, channeling the, the pain that leads to the dark side. I thought that was a really creative thing to add. So, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, just, I mean, the fact that he was injured coming into it and maybe he's underestimating her a little bit in that he has her on the edge of this precipice and then instead of pressing the advantage, he says, I could train you. And then she does her little force meditation thing and uh, is able to repel him. So, um, you know, I guess it's just a combination of his injuries and his underestimating her and... I guess her her high midichlorian count. Yeah. I'll, well, going back, I guess going back to the prequels just a second. Um, I, I guess there's a theory that midichlorians are actually like an effect of being force sensitive and not the cause. And I don't know if that um, <laughs> helps fans feel any better about that whole thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, probably the yeah. less discussed, the better. <laughs> I <would say. laughs> uh, after your second viewing, I think one of the more intriguing moments was the uh, the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you were able to pick up more. I actually just read this morning that I think Ewan McGregor and Frank Oz, uh, their voices, they record new voices uh, uh, for the uh, for the movie. Uh-huh. I don't know if you were able to pick out anything more this time around. Not really. Uh, I was watching that carefully because I felt like it went by very quickly the first time I saw it. And it's hard to say uh, what is happening there. And I like that there is this mystery and uncertainty because that was something that was missing from the prequels just really by their nature as prequels, we knew what was coming and we knew who everyone was and and we knew that Anakin was going to become Darth Vader and that still could have been satisfying, I think, if it had been handled more deftly. But just, you know, A New Hope kind of plops you down into this universe that you know almost nothing about and it just throws all this stuff at you and it doesn't explain a whole lot of it. And so in this movie, we're fast-forwarding 30 years, but there's no you know, previously in the Star Wars galaxy that catches you up on everything that's happened. You just kind of have to pick it up from context and from clues. And I like that. And I like that we don't know where Ray comes from. And because it's Star Wars and because it's a movie and this is the way that these things work, you would assume that she is related to someone we know and maybe she is is somehow Luke's daughter or, you know, someone some other force user that we know you would think that it's not going to be completely random. She was left on this planet by someone, and you would think that we know who that someone is. But I like that we don't know who it is. I like that, uh, you know, like the 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 Darth Sidious, that was like the mystery of the prequels, and it was <laughs> not a mystery to anyone except the people in the movie. And so there is an actual mystery to that, and we don't know why she was left on this planet and why she's so powerful. And... We get to speculate about it, and the nice thing is that there's another movie coming out in a year and a half, yeah, or even less, I suppose. Uh, so we kind of get into this cycle now where we get to look forward to Rogue One, and we get to look forward to Episode Eight, and all of these mysteries are intriguing and improve our experience of the movie, but also aren't that agonizing because we know that we will get some answers pretty soon. Yeah, it seemed like since this episode came, like, uh, what, 30 years since... Uh, episode six. Mm-hmm. So even though there are the prequels in between, um, I guess there's more like added emotional weight. Uh, yeah. Add on. 
on to it in the time between. Yeah, and there's this whole sense of relationships evolving, and Han and Leia have, you know, clearly had good times and bad times, and and we just skipped over all of that. We skipped over the the heartbreak of Ben becoming Kylo Ren and whatever it did to their relationship, but there are still echoes of that, and we can see it in their interactions, but it's not spelled out in the way that the prequels spelled out everything. So there's this uh, nice sense of mystery, and, and there is in-universe also in that characters like Han and Luke are these mythical figures to someone from a, a backwater world like Rey, and so she's getting to meet these people and find out that they're actual real people. And I think that kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it seems sort of surprising that, you know, the most famous figures in the galaxy would just be mythical figures to someone a few decades later. But, you know, if you have a, a settled galaxy with millions of planets and races and cultures and languages, you would expect that on Jakku, maybe they, they wouldn't be totally on top of, of galactic developments. And so some of this stuff would have a, a storybook quality to it. And uh, I guess big moment with uh, Han Solo's death. I guess something we all maybe saw coming. We weren't sure mm-hmm. whether it actually would. Um, so, uh, what was your reaction? I yeah. guess just to the lead up to it in that scene and like the actual, uh, the actual death scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, the actual death scene was was pretty heart wrenching. I would say, but in a fulfilling way, it was nice to see Han come back and be his old self. I thought. Harrison Ford was maybe more his old self than he has been in a lot of movie movies lately. Um, he was really sort of channeling the Han of the original trilogy with a older veneer, and I thought it was very much true to to that character. and And he got to play a prominent role, and he got to kind of join the the generations of Star Wars characters, and so he had a real purpose in the movie. Then he gets this this death scene, which I think is probably everything you would want in a an emotionally just gut-wrenching death scene and it takes place on a classic star wars walkway with no railings above (laughs) and a bottomless abyss which i'm nice to see i'm glad to see that the first order has also picked up the architectural style of the empire um and you know there's this kind of fake out where you think that maybe his words are are having an effect and, and they are having an effect and i like that you can see that, that that Ren is, you know, I mean, I guess you saw that with Vader too, where Luke would say, I sense there's still good in you, and Vader says it's too late, and that, you know, this was the same sort of message with, but whereas Vader would insist that there was no conflict, Ren acknowledges that there is conflict, and he is killing Han so he can try to resolve this conflict, and there's the earlier scene where he's talking to Vader's helmet, and saying, you know, he feels the pull of the light and he doesn't want to feel that anymore. And so... Yeah, it's kind of an interesting twist, which you don't really get with bad guys. Like, he's actually kind of tempted by good, which is kind of weird. Right. Yeah, I like that. You you always get the, the light side person tempted by the dark side, but you don't really get the reverse so much. And so it was nice to see that. And, uh, you know, I mean, Han kind of, he got his bow and he, he got to play a great part in this movie. And he went out in a way that I think uh, just, you know, really raised the emotional stakes and was just uh, torture for anyone who grew up watching him and loving him as a character. But you did kind of see it coming and saw why it 
had to happen or why it would advance the series and advance Ren's uh, arc also. So uh, heal status, I think. Yeah, right. So I think it was it was handled well. There's still a part of me, just you know, the the Han Solo fanboy part of me wants it not to have happened, but from a storytelling perspective, I think it was it was handled well. And uh, were you kind of squirming in your seat when that was going on? And like, was the audience? Did anyone in the audience kind of react audibly to that? Yeah, I think there was there was a gasp. Um, <laughs> I mean, there was there was a reaction to everything because I was seeing it opening night in a packed Manhattan theater full of people who were crazy enough to see Star Wars in the, the wee hours of the morning. So obviously there was definitely a, a current, a ripple running through that that audience. But, uh, you know, and you, you kind of get the sense that it's coming when he's walking out on this walkway. And uh, but but again, I think it was it was handled well and didn't feel like a betrayal of the character. I don't, I don't think anyone's really saying how could they do that to Han it's 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 clear it wasn't like uh Captain Kirk in generations yeah no it's not like you just needed to have this guy make a cameo and then kill him off it wasn't like an exploitative way to do it I think it was a way that was supported by the story and advanced the story and and I can't complain I mean Star Wars has to have a, a few heartbreaking moments to make the rest of it matter okay and um I guess one of the uh, issues of confusion in the uh, podcast that we heard earlier um, was about the whole the whole map aspect of the plot, and mm-hmm. when R two, I guess, reactivates. Um, so seeing it the second time, were you able to kind of, I guess, infer anything more from that, the, like the timing of it and what might have caused it? Not really. I, you know, all I, I mean, this is another another thing like Ray's backstory that I think is intentionally left vague. There's probably a, a good reason for that, which we'll find out later on. I would assume that, you know, maybe Luke left instructions or, or something for for R2 to reveal the map when something happened. I don't I don't know what. Uh maybe he prophesied that, that Ray would show up or something and R2 was supposed to to show this map to everyone when that happened or when the last fragment of the map showed up or or whatever it is. I I don't know how the map was generated, whether it's just sort of a, a crowdsourced map of Luke Skywalker's movements where he would show up on some outer rim world and someone would, I don't know, he checked in on Foursquare when he got to that world or something and someone someone put it all together. I don't know how that happens, but I assume we'll we'll find out more about that since it is a, a pretty central to the story. And, and again, that's another thing that I kind of I kind of don't mind. Like nothing in this movie that wasn't explained really frustrates me. It, it feels like the sort of thing that there's some intentional mystery to this and we'll find out later and for now we get to speculate and i can only assume that luke may have wanted to be found when a certain sequence of events occurred so that's my best guess and i think uh it felt like the the last shot when ray takes off in the falcon there's that big crowd shot and it felt like a kind of like a beverly hillbillies kind of <laughs> send off and i was right. wor- worried that that would be like the last shot but uh yeah no the- yeah it definitely could have been they, yeah. they absolutely could have ended it there um, but it's it's nice that they didn't. <laughs> so I think everyone wanted to get a glimpse of Luke at least, um, and it still ended on you know kind of a cliffhanger, but in a, a more satisfying way than it would have it if it if it had just been her setting off for the ocean world, which I suppose is the world that she dreamed of, the world that Kylo Ren saw in her in her memories when he was exploring her mind. And uh, I think on Twitter you had mentioned that the score was maybe a little 
disappointing, and I did kind of notice it felt like more like atmospheric background music. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there wasn't as much of a like I don't know what the single would be from this from the score, which is fine. Like nothing is nothing is bad. Like it's all it all sounds like Star Wars music. It's distinctively John Williams, but there isn't really a a signature theme. I mean, there's Ray's theme, which I think is really nice and it's understated and it comes back a little bit later in the score um and it's grown on me the more I've listened to it. And there's the March of the Resistance, but if you were ranking marches in Star Wars, this would this would be pretty far down the list, I think. Like even the even the Trade Federation march, I think, is more stirring than this one. Although the Trade Federation is is so lame that it kind of kind of ruins that a little bit. But but yeah, I mean, every Star Wars movie has a really distinctive piece of music, if not multiple pieces of music, and it's probably something that I, I would guess, if anything, John Williams's work in the prequels is underrated. Just because no one wants to watch those movies, or uh, you know what was on screen, kind of casts a pall over the actual music. But I mean, I think John Williams was just as much at the top of his game in the prequels as he was in the original trilogy, really. And the fact that something like Across the Stars or Battle of the Heroes from Revenge of the Sith or Duel of the Fates from Phantom Menace, if those things didn't quite have the, the same cultural impact that you know, the main title or the Imperial March or, or Leia's theme or any of these themes from the original trilogy did. It's probably more of a, a reflection of the, you know, the reaction to the movie itself than the actual music. So it would have been nice if this had been a, a top tier Star Wars soundtrack to go along with what is, I think, a top tier Star Wars movie, but it doesn't detract from it. I just kind of wish that there had been a moment that would kind of capture the the, mu- the magic of the movie a little bit when I put on the score when I got home after seeing the movie and it doesn't quite rise to that level for me but it's not really a, it's not really a, a negative it's more of a, an absence of a positive yeah it's like with Abrams trying to I guess harken back to the originals more you would have thought maybe he would have had more of an effort to have like stronger character themes um, yeah and I don't know <laughs> I don't know if like John Williams maybe his status is such that you can't really reject John Williams' submission. Like, I don't know if you can send it back and say, nice, nice work, but I'd like to see a little bit. I don't know how much you can really edit him. Um, so maybe what he submits is is what you're stuck with. And, and again, it's not bad. It just feels a little bit like a kind of by-the-numbers John Williams score without that one really memorable moment that brings back what you see on the screen. And it's possible that you know, all of the other scores just have the resonance of dozens of film viewings behind them. So when I listen to them, I can see what was going on at the, on the screen at the moment that that happened. And, and listening to the soundtrack, uh, going back and forth. Yeah, right. Right. There's just more of a, an emotional resonance to it just because you've seen the movie so many times. So it's possible that after I see this movie 20 times, <laughs> the, the soundtrack will have the same sort of impact. But on my first few listens, it doesn't really seem to have that that same banger that that all the other movies do so um i guess we can kind of move on to your origin story um with star wars fandom like there used to be more innocent time where like the iceberg question was whether you like star wars and <laughs> i think now that just kind of provokes hostility and bitterness but uh <laughs> yeah i just wanted to ask what your i guess early memories of uh uh-huh. the old movies were and just the experience of growing up as a fan yeah yeah it's a strange thing to be a star wars fan because Everyone is a Star Wars fan, so you can't really, you don't really get 
geek cred anymore from saying you're a Star Wars fan. It's like, you know, my favorite movies are the Star Wars movies and my favorite band is probably the Beatles. And so I'm like the most normcore person in the world. And so like to stand out, you kind of want to be like a bigger Star Wars fan than everyone else. And like, oh, well, they've seen the movies. I've seen the movies a million times and I've read the books and I've read the comics and I know everything. And there's always, you know, it's like the the Qui-Gon line about there's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger Star Wars fan, someone who just knows every bit of minutia and has consumed Star Wars in every form and owns every piece of Star Wars memorabilia. So you can never claim to be the biggest one. Um, I got into it as probably a lot of people my age did with the, the special edition. You know, the special editions were, aside from sort of some occasional like fragmented viewings on TV or VHS. I don't think I had a clear sense of the Star Wars movies before I went to see the special edition in theaters and saw them a million times and fell in love with them the same way that someone would have in the 70s or early early 80s seeing the original trilogy. And so uh, from there, it was kind of a direct line to the expanded universe. And, you know, I read the Zon books and then I read pretty much all the books <laughs> and the comics and, and everything. And, and it's strange because, you know, I mean, I guess when I started reading the expanded universe stuff, I was in fourth grade and I don't know what my critical, uh, you know, I don't know if I recognized oh. good literature at the time. <laughs> and I think, you know, some of the Star Wars EU stuff still stands up and holds up and the Thrawn trilogy is, is great, I think, at any age. And I remember a lot of other series and books fondly, but it really was a case where you probably wouldn't have liked the books on your own, or you probably wouldn't have become a major Star Wars fan if your first introduction to them had been an EU book. It you know it really brought your affection for the movies and for the characters into your reading of these other books. And I've always been a, a huge science fiction fan, and like purely as science fiction, I don't know that Star Wars really holds up to other things. I'm I'm not really a a Star Wars over, I mean, I probably am fonder of Star Wars than of anything else, but I don't know. I, I grew up reading Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and all this like classic sci-fi. And, and a lot of it is much more thought provoking than Star Wars and really, you know, even, even Star Trek, which I'm also a, a pretty big fan of kind of makes you think more than Star Wars does, I think, but something about Star Wars just, really makes you want to learn about this universe more so than any other property does. You know, I've seen all the Star Trek shows and I've seen all the Star Trek movies, but I haven't read the Star Trek books and I don't really have any desire to. And just, you know, the the storylines themselves are as well written and much more thought provoking. You know, the original Star Trek series was like the best science fiction writers of the time writing those stories. And and there are some plot lines that still stay with me now, but Star Wars, even if it doesn't really have that same sort of reflection on our culture and thought-provoking nature that a lot of the best science fiction does, it's just so engaging and so appealing and you so want to be a part of it that I really had a sort of inexhaustible appetite for all things Star Wars. I mean, you know, I'd read books like Tales from Jabba's Palace or Tales from the Cantina or whatever, where, you know, these characters who were on screen for half a second would get a short story devoted to them. And, and I wanted to know what that story was, even though they were non-entities in the movie. And Star Wars just has that pull on me and on millions of other people more so than I think anything else does. 
And uh, I think on on your show once you I think you were having a discussion like what what you guys would do if you were into baseball. I think Sam said something about entomology maybe, uh-huh. um, which is an old <laughs> cricket uh, reference.、Right. <laughs> um, and I think you mentioned a sci-fi writer.、Mm-hmm. Um, have you thought about pursuing that more seriously, or you know, what's what are your I guess hopes、uh, down the road for that. Yeah, if I if I die without doing that, I'll be disappointed in myself. I think if I have if I have time to reflect on my life,、um, yeah, I, I was, you know, I wrote for like the science fiction magazine in my super ner- nerdy high school, and like everything I wrote was a was a foundation ripoff for a while. But I definitely want to do that. I mean, I you know my favorite authors, a lot of them are science fiction authors or people like. Stephen King, who kind of dabbles in science fiction and fantasy, and that stuff has just always appealed to me on a level that not many other things do. And so, yeah, I、uh, I didn't really anticipate being so into baseball as I was growing up, and that just sort of happened. I kind of fell into that, and now I'm writing a book about baseball. But I don't really foresee that being something I would want to do long term. I always thought there's no way I'd want to write a baseball book. Just because I've written about baseball enough, like the last thing I want to do when I'm not writing about baseball is write about baseball. But this story that Sam and I were able to do was unique and appealing in a way that, you know, just a, a baseball biography or or a most nonfiction baseball books wouldn't wouldn't have been to me at least. And so I would like to branch out a bit. And you know, Grantland gave me a chance to write about video games and Star Wars and just. You know, TV and all these other things that I I couldn't necessarily do at Baseball Prospectus, and so I hope that at some point I will have time and the opportunity to get back into fiction and and be science fiction. Also, I definitely have the the love for it. Like if I could write a Star Wars book at some point,、uh, I would definitely jump at the chance. Or it could be video games or TV shows, and it's probably going to be a lot of、uh, yeah opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I just wrote something for Five Thirty Eight about esports that should be up maybe in the first week of the new year. So,、uh, you know, I'm definitely a nerd in more than one way, and it definitely applies to my interest in baseball stats, but also in many of the other ways that one can be kind of a geek. So,、uh, I'm happy to explore those in print also, and if I can write science fiction at some point that. Someone other than me and the people in my high school science fiction magazine club will read. Then that would make me happy. So a、uh, couple more Star Wars related questions.、Uh, I, I guess there's been news going around about Rick Springfield.、Uh, he has like a very、uh, prized collection,、uh, which is kind of surprising. So I was wondering if you had any like、uh, prized、uh, collectibles. I really don't. I'm I'm not much of a collector of anything really.、Um, Or not of a not a memorabilia type collector, so I you know I don't collect baseball artifacts or autographs or anything. I mean I think they're really interesting, and I'm glad that someone is preserving them. But I've never really felt the need to accumulate those things, and never really felt the need to with Star Wars either. I, I never really had a action figure collection. I don't know if that was just a failure of my imagination <laughs> as a child with my recreational activities or whatever, but it. Just never really appealed to me, and maybe it was because I came along after there were really good Star Wars video games. So you know, I've played every Star Wars video game.、Um, so that was maybe my way of collecting Star Wars stuff and interacting with the universe in a different way than just passively watching. So I have a lot of great childhood memories of playing Rogue Squadron and 
you know, Shadows of the Empire and just all these great long line of Star Wars games and X-Wing and TIE Fighter and even like underappreciated ones like Rebellion and, and Republic Commando and just all these games that kind of, you know, let you uh, participate in the Star Wars universe in a way that you can't as a viewer or reader. But as for actually collecting stuff or owning stuff, never, never really felt the urge to do that, which I'm kind of happy because once you get into that, like when I was very little, I was a huge Peanuts fan. Um, and I got to meet Charles Schultz once at his huh. ice arena in, in Santa Rosa. And I wanted to collect every Peanuts thing. Like my Christmas list for a few years literally said every Peanuts thing in the world just because I didn't want to like limit, <laughs> didn't want to limit the options to like one thing or two things or a hundred things. I kind of just wanted there to be the possibility that I would own every single thing. And that was kind of more trouble than it was worth in that you accumulate all these things and then you have to find somewhere to put them. And I still have boxes of peanut stuff that I don't know what to do with. I guess I could display them somewhere, but you don't really play with them. So it's just kind of clutter that accumulates. And if it's like a real historic artifact, like something that was used in the movie or something, that, that'd be great to own that sort of piece of history. But if you get into that, then you want to own more stuff. And then you look at something else that you think would be really cool to own. And before you know it, you're spending all your money on that and using all your shelves to display it. So I'm kind of happy to not get into that. Yeah, and it seemed like Disney's been more than willing to accommodate anyone who does want to accumulate stuff so. <laughs> yes <laughs> right yeah there will be no shortage of items produced for this movie it's uh i don't know i just i never really action figures were not really a, a thing for me maybe like nes and super nes and n64 were was that for me i remember having a, a bunch of ninja turtles action figures but i don't, I don't know like you just kind of like you hold them and you like smash them into each other <laughs> and that's like about it really <laughs> so i never knew what to do with them so i never really wanted them and uh, i was wondering if you had any like uh dream interview guests uh which you could maybe still do on your uh star wars podcast but as far as like uh anyone with like the special effects people or production wise yeah i let me i'm trying to look for a list because we were sort of brainstorming a list of guests that we wanted to have on on the on the Star Wars podcast that we were planning to do. And, I, you know, I don't know. You never know who's going to be a good guest, obviously. But I'd say that uh, I'd, I'd probably like to talk to some of the people who are in the Lucasfilm story group. Um, I wanted to do a longer story on the story group. It's this kind of Jedi Council of, like, you know, Star Wars people who've been involved for a long time. Uh, people like... Pablo Hidalgo and Leland Chi and these people who are sort of the, the shepherds of the Star Wars universe, which has been a complicated job now because of the old EU sort of being wiped away to make room for the new. And then just, you know, the, the effort that is taken to make everything synchronize and the whole lead up to The Force Awakens where there were books and there were video games and there were TV shows. Star Wars Rebels, by the way, is a fantastic show, I would say, if, if anyone hasn't seen it and likes Star Wars and just likes good TV. It's just a really well-made show made by Star Wars fans. So uh, someone who's involved just kind of in the, the brain trust of making sure that all the many pieces of Star Wars fit together would be really good to talk to. Um, Peter Harmy, I would say, who's the guy who made the Despecialized editions. 
I'd like to talk to him too. I watched those in our original trilogy marathon uh, on the day Star Wars came out. We watched the despecialized editions, which are just, you know, uh, an attempt to come as close as possible to the original trilogy as it aired in theaters, pulling from various sources, from Laserdisc and from, you know, older sources and from DVDs and from Blu-rays and just all cobbled together in this pretty seamless approximation of what the original trilogy looked like. And I'd like to talk to Simon Pegg, I think, would be fun to talk to, to see what he thinks of these movies, because really enjoyed his uh, musings on The Phantom Menace in Spaced, which is also a great series if, if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, and maybe maybe like Ben Burt, who has you know, done all the sound stuff for the movies, because what he accomplished, I think, is really pretty incredible. Uh, just, you know, the, the sounds of Star Wars are so iconic and are such a, a huge part of our identification with the series is that we can hear all these things and just instantly it conjures uh, our memories of the movies and, you know, just having something like, I don't know, I was watching the, the Clone Wars series and like the the speeder sound where Luke just engages the speeder and it makes this sort of boosting sound and it's just, it instantly takes you back to the series and, you know, just kind of a, how, how did you make this sound? Cause that's sort of a fascinating thing also, just, you know, being a sound designer and having to listen to things in your daily life and thinking that could be a lightsaber sound or that could be a blaster sound or whatever. And, you know, just the scream of the TIE fighter and the snap hiss of the lightsaber igniting, all those things are just so memorable that I'd like to talk to him about how he accomplished that. Yeah, I'm pretty looking forward to the, uh, I guess, whenever the DVD comes out for Force Awakens and seeing the uh, behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff. Um, I don't know, I, don't, I haven't seen if there's a book coming out, like the making of for this You one. would assume that any possible way that they could sell something, they yeah. will. Um, but I think uh, yeah, Kylo Ren's lightsaber sound is, I think, really well done. Um, in that it kind of, you know, it's it's like a lightsaber sound in that it's like a lightsaber, but it's not quite the same refined thrum of of the real lightsaber that is, you know, made in the appropriate way, just in the way that the the beam of it is sort of not focused and the sound of it is very harsh and discordant also. It just, it, it sort of sounds like you imagine his his soul feeling when he's having this inner conflict between light and dark and it's still not really decided whether he's light or dark. And so his lightsaber in appearance and also in sound kind of mirrors that, that conflict and that sense that he is still a work in progress and that it's, you know, it's not manufactured quite up to specifications. (laughs) So I think the last question would be, uh, I have to bring up the, uh, there was a thread in the Affected Wild Facebook about your resemblance to the General Hux character. <laughs> uh, I think that was Devin. Uh, just wondering if you, if, what your uh, official comment was on that, or if anyone else uh, that you know in person uh, thought the same thing. Uh, no one mentioned that to me that I was in the theater with. Um, I see it. I, I definitely see it. And I remember that that actor from like Ex Machina and. Uh, he was in Harry Potter. Yeah, from Harry Potter. And he was also in. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, he was also in the BBC show Black Mirror, and he's kind of, uh, I guess, mastered this this menacing character. I didn't love the character because, I don't know, the character just sort of seems like a young Tarkin kind of ripoff, sort of, in that he's like the, he's like the non-force-using 
lieutenant of the shadowy emperor figure, and he's totally ruthless and he wants to blow up planets with his giant super weapon. So he's, you know, more or less Tarkin, and there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of depth to him or or more than just, you know, the, the rivalry with Kylo Ren and his desire to eradicate the resistance. Um, so it seemed like a different take with Hux and Kylo Ren versus Tarkin and Vader, uh, who are a lot more like, I guess, emotionally in control uh-huh. uh, compared to these guys. So that was kind of an interesting uh, yeah, twist. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because the, the First Order just, I mean, the whole thing just sort of seems a little more slapdash than the Empire <laughs> yeah. did because it's, you know, it, I mean, the Empire just sort of grew out of this old Republic that had been around for tens of thousands of years, whereas the First Order, uh, you know, we assume that it arose out of the Imperial Remnant or what would have been the Imperial Remnant in the books. And it does seem a little bit like they don't totally have everything worked out, which which I like. And and so, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of a younger brain trust. And these two guys aren't totally sure where they stand in relation to each other and to Snoke. And so I, I like that relationship between them. Didn't didn't care for the Hux character particularly, but I do see the resemblance. So I guess that'll wrap up the uh, Star Wars discussion. Um, so with it being the off-season, uh, did you have any plans for Effectively Weld as far as scheduling or um, any interviews you might have uh, coming Not up? Not really. One thing that probably comes through if you've listened to the show for a while is that we don't do a, a whole lot of planning. Um, so we are, as far as I know, we're planning to stick to the the daily schedule, which I guess we got away from last off season. It's kind of hard to keep straight, but we were doing three a week, I think for a while, because there is a point, you know, in January and February when it's really hard to keep that going to sustain that. There's only so many weird drafts you can do to fill the, the dead time between big signings. Um, so we haven't, we haven't discussed any plans? I, I assume that we'll do the usual season preview series sort of in late February and March that we've done for the past couple of years. People seem to like that and it's a decent primer for the upcoming season and helps us attract some new listeners just because of the, the guests who come on and bring their own audiences. So uh, that's worked out well for us. And, and otherwise, we have literally no plans. We're doing a show tomorrow or, or today as we record this and I don't know what it will be about. So that's as far ahead as we plan when we're doing this podcast. Yeah, I think uh, I think around Christmas last time you did an episode on your own with the, uh, I think he was the maker of Super Mega Baseball. Yeah, yeah I did do that. Yeah, anytime I can sneak in a, a video game angle to a baseball podcast, I will take it. So I'm not sure. We'll probably take a few days off for the, for the holidays. But other than that, we'll still be there being the soundtrack to your morning or afternoon commute. And uh, so I'll let you um, promote anything you might have um, on 538 coming up, and uh, uh, also your Twitter account. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Ben Lindbergh. No underscores or underspace, spaces or anything. There's an H at the end. Um, and I'll tweet a link to anything I write there. So I'll be a, a more regular fixture at 538 in the new year. Um, they've kind of been considerate in uh, my coming over from Grantland. I was planning to take some time off from Grantland to finish the book up. And so they sort of extended the same courtesy to me at 538, which was very much appreciated because I needed the time. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be working on revising and editing the book. And then that'll be in about mid-January and 
certainly after that, I will be a regular at 538. Um, I have that esports story coming. I think I'll probably have one thing coming about baseball before the new year, and then you'll start seeing me there regularly. So maybe I'll do some non-baseball stuff and the occasional podcast, but whatever I do, you can find on Twitter. So uh, I think that's it for time. So um, I really enjoyed this. Uh, maybe down the road, we can have you on with someone to talk about the uh, X-Files reboot or yeah, that'd be fun. Paul McCartney's solo albums. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have uh, many interests that you know a lot of other people share, but I'm always looking for outlets for places to talk about these things. And Grantland was great for that. And mm-hmm. I hope 538 will be in some ways also, but uh, always looking for for places to talk or write about non-baseball topics because as much as I love baseball, you know, there are there are other things in life, I suppose. So it's nice to get to talk about those too. Uh, yeah, so this was fun. And uh, so thank you again uh, for being on. Thank you. Wow, what an ending. Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, oh, thank, thank you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me. <laughs> <laughs>